Amen. Amen. We can go ahead and grab a seat. That is our prayer this morning that we want to hear from the Lord. Uh, thank you, Marie, Dylan, for leading us. Uh, a little lighter team this morning. We had um, a little sickness and uh, happens to the, the best of us, right? So, um, but uh, we believe this. Our theology uh, would say this, that, that this really is the best time, one of the best times of our week. And it's not because of um, uh, sort of production value or, um, you know, any, uh, you know, lights and lasers or things like that. We, we really believe the opportunity to be together, the gathered church, um, responding to God and who he is and all that he's done. And, and um, it, it is, uh, it really is good for us. It's, it's such an encouragement to be together in this place and to worship with you. And um, my name is uh, Dave Jacobson. If we haven't had a chance to meet yet, love to, uh, love to meet you before you uh, take off today. I'm going to um, open up our Word of God together. Um, so if you have a copy of Scripture, I'd encourage you to get that out. Um, many of you got your uh, Scripture journals. If you are new here and want one, we have um, some Acts journals. We're going through the book of Acts right now, and we're marching through the entire book. And so we've got some of those. If, um, if you want to grab one after the service, there is Bibles underneath the, the seats in front of you. Um, if you don't own a Bible, you can search certainly take that home with you. Uh, That would be our gift to you. I'd love for you to see uh, with your eyes what we're looking at this morning and um, to see see the scripture. It's a long passage, so we're not going to have it on the the screen. Um, We're going to cover quite a bit of uh, verses here as we get into some more of the narrative in the book of Acts. We're calling the series that we're in Unstoppable. And we are walking through and seeing the beginning of the church and the way that uh, God uh, worked and moved powerfully at these early, um, early years uh, within the church. And if you've been with us, you've seen the Holy Spirit has come upon the church and the churches begin to uh, spread and they begin to do life together and to fellowship and to uh, serve one another and to take care of each other. And then last week, or um, rather two weeks ago, we saw there was a miracle that took place uh, at the temple. Uh, There was a man who had been lame since birth that was healed by Peter and John. And after doing so, um, after being healed, he made quite a scene at the temple, right? So people came running and people came, uh, kept kept coming to him and and Peter stood up and never missing a point to point to Jesus, stood up and said, listen, the reason that this man is healed today, the reason that he is well before you is because of his faith in Jesus. It was Jesus of Nazareth who has made this man strong. And you need to respond and you need to believe. And so Peter, Peter began to teach. And this was sort of the norm. We're gonna see this many more times of, of just this opportunity. Peter never missed a chance to speak. Well, today, uh, he kind of makes some, some declarative truth claims, um, some, says some bold statements. Um, you've probably heard the phrase before. You know, he drew a line in the sand. Um, and it's very clear what he says is you're kind of on, on this side of do you agree with this or you're on this side, uh, do you not agree with this? And, and he kind of makes this declarative statement here um, in the midst of um, the religious leaders uh, and really they were the city leaders of the day, um, the, the leaders of the nation of Israel. Um, he speaks boldly to give account for what had happened to this man who was now walking and running and jumping and making this scene. And the the leaders had to respond to it because they couldn't do anything. This guy was there. It was so obvious and clear to everybody that he had been there at the temple uh, gate and he had been um, not able to walk and now he was. And so what do we make of this? What do we do with this? Well, Peter and John say, we'll tell you exactly what you make of it, what you do of it. You need to respond to Jesus. 
And that's what we began last week, kind of pointing to Jesus. Today, we're calling uh, the sermon, We Cannot uh, But Speak. Um, you see this compelling message that, the, uh, that the, 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 the Peter and John, the church had that was so pressed into who they were and, and they could not but speak because of what they had seen, what they had heard, what they had experienced. They had to give witness to who Jesus was and what he was doing, but they do so with just incredible boldness today. Um, so what we're going to see is as they speak of the gospel, there's a few truths that we're going to see around this and how they speak of the gospel and what it uh, indicates and tells us today. Um, I think it's going to be an encouragement, hopefully a challenge as well. Uh, before we go any further, I just want to ask that God would teach us now as we give our attention to his word. Let's, let's just pray uh, together. God, we thank you for your word. And God, as we've already sang and declared your truths, we now want to hear from you from, uh, from your written word. And so, God, we respond to you. We, um, we want to uh, hear from you. Uh, God, we want to uh, be quick to listen and to apply that which you would have for us this morning. And so thank you. Thank you for meeting with us. Thank you for um, directing us. And God, we give ourselves to, uh, to you and to your word now uh, with this time that we have in front of us. God, we thank you for it. Um, in the name of your son, Jesus, we pray. Amen. Amen. All right. Well, we're in Acts chapter four uh, in verse one. Let me just read the first few verses to get us started. We're going to kind of walk our, ourselves through this narrative here. It says this, and uh, as they were speaking to the people, they being Peter and John, uh, the priests and the captain of the temple and the Sadducees came upon them, greatly annoyed because they were teaching the people and proclaiming in Jesus the resurrection from the dead. And they arrested them and put them in custody until the next day, for it was already evening. But many of those who had heard the word believed, and the number of men came to be about 5,000. Uh, the first truth that we're going to see around the gospel here this morning is this, is that persecution won't hinder the gospel. Peter and John are going to experience what we could certainly describe as, classify as, persecution. Uh, they were being attacked for the faith and belief that they held, right? So they are there, they're teaching, they're speaking to the people, huge crowds have gathered, they're in the center of it all, they're there in the city, I mean the temple, um, if you've ever been to Jerusalem, it is right there in the heart of the city, it's, 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 it is where life existed, I mean people were around and so the crowds have gathered and they're now getting the attention of the priests and the captain of the temple and the Sadducees. So the opposition that we're going to look at, um, the, the persecution, rather, is going to come from this group of people called the Sadducees. Now, if you've spent any time in Scripture, especially the, the New Testament, what you've seen is there's these couple groups of people that get mentioned often. They get a lot of airtime, right? There's the Pharisees. Those were sort of really legalistic, kind of letter of the law, but really pious, I mean, devout. Um, devout men that were in that category of Pharisees, right? And so they would study the word of God and sought with everything they were to follow the word of God. Sadducees were sort of a different kind of group within often the priests, right? They were descendants of the tribe of Levi. Um, they were uh, there at priests, but they had kind of their own set of beliefs. Let me tell you about the Sadducees a little bit. It's gonna kind of help us. And you may know this, but even um, I, I find myself like forgetting that. Like, who were the Sadducees again? What was there? So let's just a little refresher or Maybe for some of you it's new, um, but, but the Sadducees had um, kind of this particular subset of the priests, and they claimed uh, orthodoxy and resisted any sort of innovation that would come to the word of God. Sounds good, right? Well, 
part of the problem was they rejected any sort of understanding that there was a heavenly intervention of a coming Messiah. So their, whole, their belief that they held to was that the messianic age, that is the age that God was going to come and restore and to renew and to rebuild his kingdom here, had already begun. And it had begun with some of these political leaders that had um, lived a few generations before. And so they were kind of carrying out this, this belief and this holding uh, that the Messiah was more of an ideal, not a person. So just kind of this idea of messiahship and that the messianic age was more of a process rather than a datable event. And so they weren't looking for the messianic age to begin. They thought it already had. Part of this was they would also, they opposed any speculation around angels or demons and, and particularly any doctrine that had to do with the resurrection of the dead. The Old Testament, the prophets, they spoke a lot about the resurrection of the dead. The Sadducees kind of rejected all of that. And so there was no hope in the resurrection if you were a Sadducee. Now, if you want to remember, all my years of Bible school, I walked away with one thing. And, and if you've you know, spent any time around preachers, you've probably heard this before. If you want to remember who the Sadducees were, they had no hope in the resurrection. That's what makes them Sad, you see, okay, yeah. So you can remember, right? they were sad. They had no hope in the resurrection. So this is why they were fired up. The priests, which would have been Sadducees, the captain of the temple, sort of the police of the temple, kind of in, involved in kind of keeping order and kind of regulating everything, also a Sadducee. And then the other Sadducees, right? So they all come rushing, greatly annoyed. Now that's like kind of an understatement. They were very frustrated. They were upset. They had the, the uh, apple cart had been tipped a little bit, right? They were mad. Why? Well, because Peter, John, they're preaching and teaching the people and the people are listening and they're responding to it. And what are they teaching? Well, they're teaching about Jesus and who he was and that he was Messiah, right? And then it says they proclaimed in Jesus the resurrection from the dead. They said, in the name of Jesus, the dead will rise, that the dead are being made new, that the dead will receive life again when you die. If your faith and trust is in Jesus, there is life. You will be resurrected through Jesus, because of Jesus. This is a flat out uh, opposed to what the Sadducees believe. Now, the reason that they're so upset is not just because there's another belief that's floating around the temple, the reason that they're so upset is because the Sadducees had gained political and religious clout and um, even, you know, you could categorize it as dominance. Most of the priests were of the Sadducean persuasion, right? They had the captain of the temple, the high priest, that family of um, Annas was, was all Sadducees. He got his sons kind of in, in these official positions. So they had hold on this and they had cozied up to Rome. And so politically speaking, what Sadducees had kind of come, less of like a religious position, more of a political position, they had this kind of understanding if they kept kind of the tight rein on the temple and, and, and the beliefs of the people and kind of their position with Rome, that things were going to go well for them. And so politically motivated, uh, religiously sort of, um, you know, kind of keeping, uh, keeping tabs on, on some of these things, you see that they were um, in a particular uh, kind of subset of, of beliefs here. And so Peter and John preaching, they rush and they're like, you can't do that. So they arrested them and they put them in custody. Persecution came and they had to uh, wait until the next day because it was already evening. But here's the thing that we see is that even though there's persecution, right? Even though there's direct uh, confrontation, limiting of the gospel going forth, it won't hinder the gospel. 
Look at verse four. It says, but many, many of those who heard the word believed and the number of men came to be about 5,000. Notice the change. We've seen some other numbers before, but, but this number, they're numbering, numbering just the men. Um, I think I said this last week. They're not um, excluding women. They're just count, that's their way of counting households. So they're basically saying, you know, 5,000 households believed. So a lot of commentators would say, well, if you add in then the women and some children, you know, you can multiply that by two or even three. So at this point, there's between 10, maybe even upwards of 15,000 people that have believed in Jesus and are beginning to follow him. And so it is spreading, right? Like this is, the church is exploding. And when you think about that in context of Jerusalem, it's not that large of a city. And so this would have been just an incredibly large amount of people all at once believing. And what we see here is that even though there's persecution, even though Peter, John arrested and imprisoned, the gospel is still going forth. And persecution was not stopping it. And this, I think, should be encouraging to us, church, is that that has always been the case. In fact, wherever you see in history persecution, attack of the gospel has existed, the gospel spreads even stronger and oftentimes even quicker. There's a confidence and there's a boldness that comes. And I think, you know, when we talk about persecution, our sort of understanding or maybe experience of persecution is quite tame compared to what these guys are experiencing. Um, I don't know everybody's story, but I think I can say with confidence, if you grew up here in this country, you've never been imprisoned for your faith before. That's not something we've all encountered. Now, maybe you know, you've been uh, picked on at the lunch table, or you've been sort of shut out at work, or you've had neighbors kind of shun you, or you've been misunderstood. Now, I'm not saying that that doesn't count, and that's not harmful and hurts and, and is difficult. But what we're talking about here is real persecution. I mean, we're going to see people stoned and beaten and imprisoned, and, and there's real opposition that comes. And such it is in the church. You know, it sounds really cute and really fun to say, man, can we just get back to that Acts 2 church? You know what I mean? Like, can we just get back there where everyone was just sharing their stuff and everyone's caring for each other and fellowshipping together? Like, if we could just get back to that church, that's what we gotta do. We have to understand is that that favor they found with the the people was super short-lived, okay? From here on forward, from chapter three on, there is now persecution, Every single chapter of the rest of the book of Acts, except for three, has persecution in it. And so if we want to get back to the church at Acts, which I think is great, it's a great sentiment, let's understand what we're saying, though. They were living out their faith, and they were being persecuted, killed, attacked, beaten, imprisoned for it. But let's remember what we also see is that that persecution was not hindering the gospel. In fact, it forced people to disperse and to spread out and to take it further, and to take it faster. And as they believed, they found hope, and they found life, and they found healing in the hope of the gospel. What is the gospel? It's the message of Christ crucified for sin, that everyone who calls on the name of Jesus would be saved. This is the message that they are proclaiming and preaching. It's the resurrection from the dead that's found in Jesus Christ. And so the persecution did not stop the gospel. It only helped to spread it further Why do I think this is an important point for us to just pause on this morning? Well, it's because I think in our country, and certainly in our lifetime, we have enjoyed a relative amount of peace around our ability to express our faith, to believe in Jesus, follow him, right? Like nobody was in danger this morning on your way here. We came and gathered in this place freely. 
We're not super concerned about getting storm, like kind of, you know, shut down or the feed cutting out or people coming in. Like we, we have a relative freedom to be able to worship in the way that we want, right? But that may not always be the case. Let me just tell you, church, is that if the day comes, we have to be ready for it. If the day comes when the world starts pressing harder, particularly our country starts pressing harder, we shouldn't be surprised. Why? Because that's how they treated Jesus. That's how the church has always been treated. It's always been oppressed and persecuted and pushed aside. That's, there's always been opposition that has come. The true church, true followers of Jesus have always been opposed. But it did not, persecution did not hinder the gospel. It continued to go forth now we have thousands upon thousands, upwards of 10, 15,000 that have believed. So that's an encouraging truth. Let me give you another encouraging truth, and it's this, is that opposition won't undermine the gospel. We don't just see persecution, but we also see opposition to the gospel. These rulers, the elders, the scribes, the, the religious leaders were directly opposing the message that they are now preaching and proclaiming. Let's see how they respond. Verse five, follow along in your copy of scripture if you've got it there in front of you. Uh, On the next day, their rulers and elders and scribes gathered together in Jerusalem with Annas the high priest and Caiaphas and John and Alexander who were all of the high priestly family. And when they had set them in their midst, they inquired, by what power, by what name did you do this? Then Peter, filled with the Holy Spirit, said to them, rulers of the people's Of the people and elders, if we are being examined today concerning a good deed done to a crippled man, by what means this man has been healed, let it be known to you, to all of you, and to all the people of Israel, that by the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, whom you crucified, whom God raised from the dead, by him this man is standing before you well. He goes on, he doubles down. This Jesus is the stone which was rejected by you, the builders which has become the cornerstone. And there is salvation and no one else, for there is no other name under heaven given among men by which we must be saved. An incredible claim, an incredibly bold statement. And let's just remind ourselves, let's kind of put ourselves in the text. Let's, let's get the context of where Peter is and what he's, who he's talking to. It says there, the rulers, elders, and scribes. So we're not just talking the Sadducees. We're talking the whole Sanhedrin, all the leaders, right? So all the temple leaders are there in that place and it would have been an intimidating bunch, all right? That's like a very understated way of saying that. Like imagine you've probably all seen on TV um, and, you know, someone kind of testifies before Congress, right? Or there's like a, you know, they have those different um, kind of testimony and they have like the panel or the committee that kind of stands there and they all have their mics and the lights are all on. You got all these cameras around and everybody's kind of watching, right? And so it might be a business leader or some, um, you know, political leader or something has to kind of give account for what happened. It would have been very similar to that. So sort of semi-circle feature. You have Peter and John. It would appear this, this man that was lame, he seems to be right there with him, right? So he's, he's there too, the three of them standing there and they are in the midst of the All the leaders, everybody's there. And so you want to talk about a place that would be easy to crumble. And you would expect, I mean, these are just normal 
dudes, right? Peter, John, they're from Galilee, they're from the country. They're not like prepped like for debate. They haven't, you know, graduated from um, the, the, the most prestigious universities and not coming in there with all their facts and sort of figures in place and ready to give account to these things. You would expect that a couple of fishermen would sort of crumble in that place and would, and would just sort of back down from that, but they don't do that at all. You especially might expect that because again, Peter I think we've mentioned this before, but remember, just weeks before, when Jesus was still there, he denied Jesus, even knowing Jesus, to a teenage girl. He's being following Jesus around, and this girl's like, hey, didn't, weren't you one of the 12? Like, weren't you one of the ones who, who followed? And Peter's like, no, I, I, I never knew him. You must have me confused, right? And so Peter even denies to a little girl uh, that he even knew uh, Jesus. And so now he is before all the religious leaders having to give account, right? And they say, by what power or what name did you do this? And this is so good. I love what happens here. It says, then Peter filled with the Holy Spirit, filled with the Holy Spirit. Now, Peter, we've talked about this before, is you receive the Holy Spirit, but there's many fillings. Like the Holy Spirit's anointing Peter for a special work at that time. And he is being led by the Spirit. The Spirit is giving him the words that he needs to say. It's giving him that confidence, giving him that boldness. And I would say there's been plenty of times in my um, years in ministry and, and, and just opportunities when there's been situations where like, man, I don't know how to respond here. I don't know what I'm going to uh, say here. But seeing and sensing that the Spirit is leading and, and working in that moment and, and will give words to say and will fill with boldness and will do that. I mean, the Spirit can give us what we need in those moments. So you think about it. I mean, he may have never, he may have not ever been ready or prepared for a situation like that, yet the Holy Spirit is so good to him and leads him and gives him what he needs. And then what he says is even better. Um, then being filled with the Holy Spirit, he uses sarcasm, which I love. If you're picking up sarcasm, you're reading your Bible correctly. Like there's a little bit of sarcastic tone in there. So being filled with the Spirit, he speaks with some sarcasm. I kind of respect that. All right, I'm like, okay, maybe, maybe not every time I use sarcasm, it's, it's just my flesh kind of speaking. Maybe, maybe, maybe God can use that too. So he uses this. He says, rulers of the people and the elders, if we are being examined today concerning a good deed done to a crippled man, by what means this has, man has been healed? Okay, that's the sarcasm. He's like, really? Really? We're on trial for What? Because there was a man who hasn't been able to walk for 40 years, now he can walk. He's jumping and praising God and you're upset about it? And you wanna know how we did that? Like, that's why we're on trial? Okay. You're like, well, I'll bite. If this, is, if this is why we are on trial and you wanna know how this man was healed, I'll tell you. I'll tell you exactly how he was healed. Let it be known to you and all the people of Israel that this man was healed by the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth. The same Jesus that you crucified the same Jesus who is alive and well, who God raised from the dead, and by him, this man is standing before you well. I mean, what do you do with that, right? Like, they're like looking at it and they're like, well, I guess we asked, right? Like, how did you heal him? And they can't deny that he's healed. I mean, he is walking around. And he's like, he's healed because of Jesus. Like, not good enough. Give us a different answer, right? Like, we don't, we're not gonna accept that. But then Peter, Peter makes this claim. Right? You see, you sense the, the filling of the Spirit, the boldness with which he's proclaiming this. He says, this Jesus, this Jesus is the stone that was rejected by you. He's quoting a psalm here. 
This Jesus is, a, is the stone which was rejected by you, the builders. He's like, God, God is you. You are leading the, the, the people. The, the, you are the religious leaders and you have the opportunity. You are the builders which God has entrusted to you to lead and to shepherd and to guide the people. And he gave you this stone, but you rejected it, right? You called for the crucifixion of Jesus, And now he's taken this stone, rejected by you, and he has made it into the cornerstone. Jesus is the foundation and the completion. He is the most central part of that building, this idea of this cornerstone. He's like, everything else pivots around this and is structured around this, and this is the completion of what he is doing. He is in greatest prominence, this Jesus of Nazareth. And then he says, verse 12, and there is salvation in no one else, for there is no other name under heaven, given among men by which we must be saved. Now that is an incredible truth claim. It's black and white, plain and simple. You can see it right there. There is no other name by which men are saved. This is what Peter is claiming. And you have to understand that this would have been just as bold and just as countercultural of a statement then as it is today. They lived in an extremely polytheistic culture. And there was an extremely polytheistic worldview that dominated, right? There was many, many gods, hundreds if not thousands of gods that Rome held to. If you had a god, you could just get it right in there with the bunch, right? All of them kind of thrown in together. The, the approach that the, the Roman Empire would take is that if you have a god and you believe in it, follow it, that's awesome, that's great, go for it. In fact, we'll, we'll celebrate you for that. Now, the one caveat is, is there's this phrase kind of translated to English, basically said that Caesar is the Lord of Lords. Caesar is the King of Kings. And so you can have your God, but you need to put Caesar right next to or kind of slightly above that God. So you're welcome to believe in whatever God you want or gods. You can have multiple, as long as you don't say that your God is greater than Caesar, right? So there was this this power differential. So they were totally fine with this polytheistic claim as long as Caesar was in its right place and you didn't uh, kind of mess up that. Now, what, what Peter is here claiming and what Peter is pointing to, he is saying, no, no, Jesus is the King of Kings. Jesus is the Lord of Lords. He is the only way for salvation. And all of these other gods and worldviews and religions fall short to explain the truth that is found in Jesus Christ alone. What an incredibly bold statement. This is why it was causing so much stir, right? Because he's elevating Jesus above even Caesar, King of Kings, Lord of Lords. Have you heard that before, right? That is what the church was proclaiming and saying about Jesus. And so if you're making your claim that God is greater than Caesar, you are making a political threat. That is how it was being interpreted here. And see, if you look at that statement again, right? There is no salvation, there's, and there's salvation, rather, and no one else, for there is no other name under heaven given among men by which we must be saved. This statement, the problem that people have with this statement today is the same problem that they had with it then. And I think we have to, if we're going to follow Jesus and we're going to hold to the word of God, we have to wrestle with this statement. Are we comfortable with this statement? See, Christ made a very similar statement, right? He said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father but through me. Very exclusive, very exclusive. And the worldview and kind of place that we find ourselves in today, our culture would say that you can't make statements like this. We would have issue. They would take issue with exclusive truth claims. 
And I've done some looking and kind of studying this week around this, and I found um, some, some uh, writing and kind of work of Tim Keller to be super helpful, so I want to give credit to where credit's due, but, but he kind of helped me see that there's, there's kind of two main issues, there's others, but two main issues that I think people today have with the statement like this. The first is, is that this comes across very arrogant, right? This is an arrogant thing to say, that there is no one else. Who are you to make this claim that you know better than other people? I think we have to be very clear about what we're claiming if we kind of claim this statement. See, we're not saying this. We're saying Jesus said this. And if you want to follow Jesus, people are often okay with people following Jesus. They just don't like People following Jesus and all the things that he said and all the things that he did. You see, Jesus is the same Jesus that says, yes, I am the way, the truth, and life. Nobody comes to the Father but through me. There is one way, right? He poured out his sin. He gave his life for those who would receive him and would follow him that they might be saved. See, Jesus was very unique from any other follower or any other leader or God or um, any, any other kind of religious leader that you would look to. So you could stack him up against Buddha or Muhammad or um, Gandhi or you know, whatever, kind of fill in the blank. And, and, and they're going to be at odds in a very different place than Jesus. None of them claimed the things that Jesus claimed. Jesus claimed to be the son of God. He claimed to be the only way that life is achieved. And then he did everything that was necessary for it so that those who would put their faith and trust in him have it perfectly and fully achieved through Jesus. See, he didn't give a a set of beliefs and, and marching orders that you have to believe in to receive faith. Rather, he did all that and then called you to just respond to it. Very different. And so as we look at this statement and say that there is salvation and no one else for no other name given among men, by which we must be saved. This sounds like a pretty exclusive statement, but listen, this is a very inclusive statement in the sense that this is available to anybody who would respond, right? It doesn't matter where you came from, what your story is, what you've done. The truth of scripture says this, is that all who call on the name of Jesus will be saved, that there is forgiveness for anyone No matter how bad or how evil or how wicked you feel like your sin is, Jesus' blood is enough. And so yes, it might sound arrogant, but it is true to what Jesus said and who he is. And so that's how we could respond or would respond to this. The other, I think, issue that people take, and maybe this is your issue too, is that this is is too exclusive, right? Right? Like, how can you say that all these other world religions, I mean, think about it. You've got neighbors, you've got coworkers that believe in other things, that they're wrong? Like, how can you make that exclusive of a statement that this is right and they are wrong? But the fact is this, is that this statement doesn't leave other avenues or places. There is salvation in no one else, for there is no other name under heaven given among men by which we must be saved. And what our world would say today is that you can't make exclusive truth claims like this. But here's the problem with it. Can we just like unpack that for a minute? That is a logically inconsistent statement to say, that you can't make exclusive truth claims, especially uh, ones that were pertaining to your religion and your worldview, right? Because here's, here's the thing where I think that comes from, or here's why people would say that. 
There's an assumption today that religion can be privately and subjectively helpful. So if you have kind of your private view that's for you, and it's kind of your subjective choices, that that is a helpful thing for you. And you're welcome to that. All of you are fully entitled in your workplace, in your uh, whatever kind of structure, framework you might find yourself in, people are totally okay. If you have a little personal kind of religion and that's, that's helpful for you and that's kind of your subjective things, that's great, that's fine. The problem is, is that you can't make that objective, that that's true to and applies to everybody else. But that's what this statement is doing. It's saying, no, no, this isn't just a subjective personal thing. This is a truth claim that applies to everybody. Like nobody finds salvation except through the name of Jesus Christ. So that's where the issue comes. And so the, the, the way to explain it then is religion can't be objectively true. And so what we need to get to is the place that all religions are equally helpful and equally valid, right? They all sort of serve that personal need and kind of help. That's where I think our world would want to be. And not just this country, everywhere. I would say that that's kind of like moving Certainly there's corners or places that hold, hold deep, but we're seeing that across like many countries would say that all religions are equally helpful and equally valid. Now there's only two ways, again, Tim Keller was helpful with this, there's only two ways that um, you're like, man, he sounds really smart. It's because I, I know some like, good people to read and some other things to listen to, right? There's, there's, um, there's two ways that make this true, that all religions are equally helpful and valid. The first is, is that if there is actually no God, if God does not exist, then all religions can be equally true and helpful. It's just kind of, it's, it's sort of like, you know, just a helpful framework to kind of, you know, help you and kind of get through some things. And so it's not actually true, but it's just a belief that kind of gets you through some things. The other way that that statement, all religions are equally helpful and valid, is that if God does exist, but he's so impersonal and so disconnected with our world that he honestly doesn't really care how you get to him. He's just kind of like, you know what? Whatever you find works for you, I'm good with that, right? That's a very, very impersonal view of, of God. And so if that's true, if God is real and God is, is an is a actual being that exists and he has some power and has some things, but he just doesn't care how you get to him, as long as you have belief in something, well then, yeah, then it would be true that all religions are equally helpful and valid, but here's the thing. Here's where, again, going back to that you can't make an exclusive truth claim like that becomes really difficult. Because if you're here today and you maybe hold that and you would come to a Christian and say, listen, you, you as a Christian, you can't claim objectively that there is only one way. You have to support all of, these other, all of these other things. What are you doing in that moment? Well, you're making an exclusive claim about who God is. Either you're saying God does not exist and so you need to stop believing in God like I do or you're saying God is so impersonal that he doesn't care how you do it. You need to believe in God like I do, right? Like even in coming and trying to say, you're making an exclusive truth claim. And so there's so much logical uh, inconsistency with it. What you really find when you start breaking it down, anyone who's claiming that they're not making a logical or sort of an exclusive truth claim is making an exclusive truth claim. Right, to say that no one can make an exclusive truth claim. That's an exclusive truth claim, right? To say that there is no absolute truth. 
Do you believe that? Is that absolutely true? Yes, there is no absolute, like it, it defeats itself. Like logically, we kind of run into this place. But then, but then, look at this, the place that then it really starts to rub and, and become inconsistent is when it then kind of works itself out in how we then interact with and kind of stand for other people, right? We are all, we are all about justice right now. That is, that is the topic of conversation, and it's good. There's a lot of good things coming out of it. But the problem, the second you start talking about justice and injustice, right, wrong, evil, good, the question is, by what standard are we judging that, right? There was a story I heard about a woman who went to, uh, was working with some different tribes, different uh, people groups, and, and saw the way that women were being so poorly treated, and it just broke her heart. And she was like, I need to stand against this. But then she was immediately super conflicted because what she had always believed, all, who am I to put my view and my worldview upon these people? She was making an exclusive claim and she was claiming objectivity. Doesn't matter your culture. Doesn't matter your upbringing. There are some things that are right and some things that are wrong. And we need to hold on to those. If you take Jesus, if you take the gospel out of the equation, where does that objectivity come from? See, what we hold to as followers of Jesus is that every man, every woman, every child is of value and worth because they are made in the image of the God that created them. And that there is the reason that we, we are for justice and we stand against injustice is because God would call us to. And his objective view of that is true. And so we don't just kind of subjectively decide who gets a pass and who doesn't, right? Who is good, who's, who's evil. I mean, you could take this even further. You know, someone would say, well, you know, well, what, what then, like who, who, who gets, who receives salvation, right? Who receives eternal life? Well, it's all the good people. Right, if you're good, you're gonna get it. By whose standard? Right, like where's the line? Where's the cutoff? Who, who gets to make this call? All of these things break down. I go into this, say all this to just say this, is that the gospel holds the answer that our world is desperately looking for. We cannot explain and logic our way out of these things. You have to look at and see, give account for why is there so much life change that comes from Jesus? Why are we seeing these things be? What do you do with statements like this? I mean, what do you do with the historical Jesus and all the historical accounts that would say that he was a real person that lived in a real time and he died and now it was witnessed by hundreds being alive after his time of death? What do you do with that? What Peter is claiming here is that there is salvation in no one else, for there is no other name under heaven given among men by which we must be saved. Listen, church, we can find confidence and boldness that their opposition will not undermine the gospel. If it is true, which we hold to and believe that it is, if it is true, then it will stand on its own. That no amount of opposition is going to take it away. No amount of opposition is going to Take, uh, is, is going to undermine it and, 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 and bring it to a place that it's going to crumble and fall apart. It is going to stand strong. And listen, church, this is what we proclaim boldly and confidently here at City on a Hill. We're not against anyone else. We're not trying to pick sides, but what we're doing is we're trying to call, hold to the truth that we see in Scripture is that there is no other name by which men is saved 
but through the name of Jesus Christ. And this would be what we would call you to response today. If you've never believed in Jesus, his grace poured out, his life given, his death for your sin, this is the truth of the gospel, which would call you to response, that you would respond and believe in him as your savior and that you will be saved and again, this, isn't, this, isn't, this is a very inclusive call because all who receive Jesus will be saved. None of us deserve to be saved. None of us deserve salvation. He and his grace and his forbearance and his love for the world gave this opportunity, right? He made a way. So it's not, I am the way. What, there's only one way? It's I am the way. What, there's a way? We have a way. Jesus made the way. And Peter spoke this with boldness. We need to respond. Then we see it continues on. Let me give you the truth and then I'll, I'll, uh, I'll, I'll, we'll unpack it and I'll show it to you in the scripture. It's this. If you're taking notes, qualification won't enhance the gospel. So persecution won't hinder it. Opposition won't undermine it. Your qualifications won't enhance it. You don't bring anything to the equation but your sin. Notice this, verse 13. But when they saw the boldness of Peter and John, they perceived that they were uneducated common men. They were astonished. Luke is like a bit of a dig there, right? Like, come on, Luke. We're <laughs> uncommon, like uneducated common men. Like Peter's probably like reading this later, you know. But they, they, they were just normal guys, right? They didn't have all the degrees and all the training that these men would have had, yet they were standing there in confidence with boldness proclaiming, and, and the, the, the Sanhedrin was astonished. And what did they do? They recognized something. They recognized that they had been with Jesus. How did they have this boldness? How did they have this confidence? Well, they've been with Jesus. And that is just it, that our qualifications, so many times I think you need, like, I need better training, or I need to read more, or I need to have more verses memorized, or I need to, you know, give, be able to give a better defense of my faith. Here, if you want to enhance the gospel, there's nothing that you're going to, your qualifications aren't going to bring anything to it. It's all about how much you're pointing to, being with, reflecting Jesus, right? They sensed, they understood that they had been with Jesus and that's why they were speaking with the confidence and the boldness that they were. I'm gonna use a really kind of um, maybe poor illustration to illustrate this point, but it was the best that I could think of and I think it's, I think it's pretty good. Just some of you may not you know, love this. Now you're excited, right? Um, some of you know my love for the restaurant Chipotle and um, if you're like, man, how can I encourage Dave this week? You can always just you know, give me Chipotle um, it, you could drop it off. You can give me a gift card. You could, you know, whatever, whatever form or kind of way it comes to me, I'm, I'm good with. Or we'll go together. I'll, I'll go with you. You know, we'll, we'll meet there. Um, but if you've ever been to Chipotle, the rest of the day, everybody knows that you've been to Chipotle, right? Like you smell like that place for the rest of the day. And so there's no, my, my wife kind of gets a little, Brie gets a little jealous when I get home. And, and if I had, a, like she likes Chipotle just as much as I do. And so if I get home and I've been, to, she like knows, there's no getting around that. She's like, you've been at Chipotle, <laughs> right? Like she can, I smell it, right? It's not nearly as good there as it is there. But, um, 
but there's this kind of this, this fragrance that stays with you and, and people kind of know and, um, and, 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 and some of you have experienced that. Now, maybe, maybe for you, it's not Chipotle, maybe it's the coffee shop or maybe it's you know, another restaurant, whatever, fill in the blank. Um, but this kind of idea about being there and that fragrance sort of hanging with you and other people being able to pick up and to know, um, that's kind of the idea of what's going on here. You see, they look at these men, they hear the men, and they recognize something about them. They're like, they've been with Jesus. Like the same confidence, the same love, the same care, the same concern, the same understanding of God's working in this place. It's the same as that man, Jesus, from Nazareth. They had been with Jesus. But notice what happens next, verse 14. But seeing the man who was healed standing beside them, they had nothing to say in opposition. They're like, what else do we say, right? Like, <laughs> This guy's still running around. Like he's probably still like just jumping, you know? Like, look at me, you know? Like, they're like, what do we say? We can't, we can't do anything. But they commanded them, when they had commanded them to leave the council, they conferred with one another, right? Private meeting. What shall we do with these men? For a notable sign has been performed through them and is evident to all the inhabitants of Jerusalem. We cannot deny it. So like, we can't, we can't just ignore it. We can't say it didn't happen. But in order that it may spread no further among the people, let us warn them to speak no more to anyone in this name. So that's what they did. They called them, charged them not to speak or teach in the name of Jesus. They're like, we mean it, okay? Don't talk about Jesus. That was their solution. Peter, John, not backing off at all, answered them, whether it is right in the sight of God to listen to you rather than God, you must judge. For we cannot but speak of what we have seen and heard. They're like, whether that's right or wrong, you got to like, give account to God. We know what we've seen. We know what we've heard. We can't do anything but speak about him. And when they had further threatened him, no, no, we really mean it, right? Don't talk about him. They let them go, finding no way to punish him because of the people. Everyone, all were praising God for what had happened. For the man on whom this sign of healing was performed was more than 40 years old. Listen, this should be encouraged by this truth, is that you, your qualification and what you bring to the table will not enhance the gospel, right? You're not adding anything to it. It's not better or stronger because of your wit and your kind of knowledge and, and your, your way of, of, of pointing and unpacking people, unpacking this for people. Rather, all the power of the gospel is, is found in the person of Jesus Christ. Right? They are just speaking of what they have seen and heard. And that then gives us a really clear picture of how we are then to be his witnesses. Right? They're doing exactly what he said. He said, go, be my witnesses. Tell of what you've seen and heard. They're doing that. And the reason they were able to do that with such boldness was because they had been with Jesus. And so I'm reminded of the words that Jesus said to his followers at the beginning of the, Mark, when he said, at the, beginning of the book of Mark. He said, follow me and I will make you become fishers of men. He didn't say, hey, here's the four-step plan of how you're gonna become fishers of men, or here's what you need to go and do. He's like, no, no, follow me, and I'm gonna make you fishers of men. Listen, if we want to be bold in our pointing others to the gospel, if we wanna be bold in our witness for Jesus Christ, church, we need to be with Jesus because what we see is that he impacts and he affects. What we see in these men is we see an anointing of the Spirit Right, a filling of the Spirit. We see boldness. 
We're going to unpack that next week. Pastor um, Blake, our, our church planting resident who was up here earlier, he's going he's to preach for us on, on boldness next week. We're going to see that the believers are praying for boldness. What does that mean? What does it not mean? Right? We see in the followers of Jesus this concern for the lost. They're not arrogantly walking around like talking about some magic formula they found. They're trying to like invite everybody that they can find. They're, they're, they're genuinely burdened for people who don't know Jesus. Would you come to Jesus? He can save you. He can fix you. He can heal you. They're calling people to Jesus. They're growing in their own Christ-likeness, their humility, their meekness, their love for others, their peace, their patience. They're growing more and more like Christ, and they loved God. They loved God. Being with Jesus gave them a love for the Father and they have confidence in the gospel. They know that it is the hope for mankind. For all of us, this is what we are looking to is the confidence that we find in knowing Jesus Christ. And so they couldn't help but speak. What about us? What about us? Do we feel the same drive, the same confidence, the same boldness? It's not your qualifications, not what you bring. It's in the gospel itself. And so listen, church, some of us, maybe we need to respond for the first time ever to Jesus as Savior, acknowledging that there's nothing you're going to do, okay? No amount of good works, no amount of religious uh, motions and, and kind of checking boxes and showing up. None of that's going to do it, right? No other God, no other religion, no other worldview is going to save you but belief in Jesus Christ and what he has done on the cross. That is the exclusive claim of Christianity, of Peter, of John, of Jesus, that he is the name by which we are saved. Would you maybe, maybe from some of you, the response is that you need to respond with humility and believe that Jesus is who he says he is and that he came to save you, you from your sin and to give you life and in purpose and eternity. Others of us, maybe we need to take a note from the boldness and the confidence that Peter and John have, and would we have that same concern, that same care for the lost? Who are we to hold on to this, which has happened, right? Would we be the, the same? We cannot but speak about what God has done, right? That we need to go from here, we need to tell somebody, hey, let me just tell you what Jesus has done to me, what Jesus has done in my life, the way that he saved me. You gotta know. I can't, I can't not tell you anymore. I'm sorry I haven't told you sooner, right? Like, I need you to know what Jesus has done. That's my story. Jesus saved me when I was a young child. I continue to grow and walk and understand who he is. I was baptized when I was 13, and I have been following him ever since. And let me just tell you, I have hope. I find freedom. I find joy. I find forgiveness. I find peace. I find everything I've ever looked for in the person of Jesus Christ, right? I cannot but speak and tell you of the hope that I have found. This is what we are called to as witnesses for him. Let's pray and let's respond uh, together. God, we thank you for your incredible love for the world and God, specifically for us, God, you are willing that none should perish, but all should come to repentance. And so with that confidence, with that boldness, God, we want to proclaim the hope that we found in you. Jesus, thank you. Thank you for coming. Thank you for living the life we couldn't. Thank you for the dying of the death that we deserved. God, thank you for 
being our Savior. You are that, God. And so fill us with that confidence in that. Would we be reminded of all that you have done on our behalf? And God, that we would take that to those who need to hear. God, those that need to respond. And maybe even today, there's some here today that know that they need to respond to you. God, would we not wait another day? Would we respond in trust, in faith, belief, knowing that you have the power to heal. God, you have the power to save. Thank you. Thank you, God, for who you are and the way that you love us, the way that you're working. We want to respond to you now and give you the praise that you are due. In your son's name we pray, amen.